0: Welcome back to Abstract, colon, the future of science, making graduate research unprecedentedly accessible. I'm your host, Jeremy Elman. 62% hydrogen, 24% oxygen, 12% carbon, 1.1% nitrogen, a whole bunch of other stuff coming to you from the past as you listen in the present. And we talk about the future of science. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what on earth is going on inside of the batteries in my laptop, my phone, my TV remote, and my brand new electric car? Can we put rockets in space, fueled solely using lithium-ion batteries? Can we make batteries from other elements on the periodic table? How efficient is the recycling process? And how sustainable is widespread batteries? And how do we even collect energy from moving electrons? Answers to these questions and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract. Buckle up, folks. After internships in Paris, France, and Ulm, Germany, Jeremy received his bachelor's degree in chemistry at the University of Ottawa. Jeremy then crossed the borders to Montreal, where he's currently completing his PhD at McGill University. His thesis is based on improving the ubiquitous lithium-ion batteries, which are a key solution to the current climate crisis. Specifically, Jeremy's developing a methodology that would allow scientists to detect the lithium-ions inside a battery while it's operating. It would also allow researchers to optimize new cell designs for high charge and discharge rates, and this would facilitate modern fast-charge battery technology. When this Franco-Ontarian is not nursing his batteries, he enjoys gardening, brewing beer, pottery, and distracting his colleagues. So we now have him here to distract us for some time, so let's welcome Jeremy to the podcast. Jeremy, how's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. First Jeremy on the show. Apart from myself, so I am super stoked for that.
1: I was going to say great name.
0: Excellent name. Yeah, good choice. I know neither of us chose it, but thank those parents. Also, crazy, you studied or were doing an internship in Ulm, Germany. Ulm is the city from which my name comes. Does it really?
1: I was gonna say your pronunciation of Ulm was on point, so I was pretty impressed. So
0: yeah, Ulm and like I am a man of Ulm.
1: That's true. That's a no
0: j- no joke. So it's like kind of scary, Jeremy. Like I'm I'm kind of scared right it
1: now. It is. It is. There's a synchronicity there. You should visit
0: Ulm. Beautiful city. I would love to. My sister's been, but I have I have not made my way out there yet. Let's just get right into it. So there are batteries everywhere around me right now. There are batteries in my computer, in my phone, in the remote control for my television. Let's just start off by actually talking about what it is that is happening inside of those batteries in general, and then I guess we can talk about maybe some differences between different kinds of batteries. I have a battery, and I zoom into that battery. What's actually going on inside there? Absolutely.
1: So it's a really good question. So the batteries that you're probably mostly referring to are the lithium-ion batteries that are now really taken over. And lithium-ion batteries do work slightly differently from other battery chemistries, uh, which is how we would refer to these. So the lithium-ion battery system is what we call a rocking chair system. Now, basically, there's three main components. If you're going to zoom into a battery, there's two electrodes. There's a positive electrode, there's a negative electrode. And there's an electrolyte between them, which carries these lithium ions. And that's where the name comes from.
0: An electrolyte is what exactly? An
1: electrolyte is a, a salt that's dissolved in a solvent. So in the case of lithium ion batteries, we're going to have a lithium salt dissolved in a liquid solvent, uh, which is going to transfer the charge from one electrode to the other. So there's salt inside my batteries. Exactly. There's salt. That's cool. Not table yeah. salt, but a different kind of salt.
0: No, we're going to get to the other kinds of salts later, but for now. Okay. <laughs> let's focus on just lithium. Okay, so there's salt, a salty solution inside my battery. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now uh, the reason they call these rocking chair batteries is what happens as you charge and discharge these batteries, these lithium ions will ping pong back and forth between one electrode and the other. So as you're discharging your battery, all your lithium ions are trying to get as quickly as they can from the negative electrode towards the positive electrode where they will insert themselves in that positive electrode. And contrarily, when you're charging a battery, These lithium ions are going to go the other direction, and they're going to move towards the negative electrode to place themselves inside the negative electrode material.
0: Oh, so there's this... Okay, so charging and discharging is kind of like... There's always a unidirectional flow. Exactly. And depending on whether it's one or the other, the flow is either towards the positive or towards the negative. That's exactly it. So the ping-ponging... Like, it's just me hitting ping-pongs in one direction. Exactly. That's exactly Uh, it. Okay, sure. So the rocking chair seems kind of um, a bit of like a misnomer, kind of a, because a rocket share goes back and forth and back and forth. But while I'm using my computer, I only have things going, like rocking in one direction.
1: Exactly. But that's really what you're seeing is, is over the course of a discharge, all the lithium ions are going in one direction. And then over the charge, they're going the opposite direction. So at any given time, as we're using our devices currently, you know, the lithium ions are all flowing in the same direction.
0: Now, just to be clear, when you say charging and discharging, is that something that happens rapidly throughout the use of it or are you saying discharging is literally the thing that happens while the battery is not being actually charged
1: the the latter so you know if if i if i charge my phone over the course of the night i unplug it i'm using it over the course of the day i am discharging that battery over the course of the day when i get back home i'm going to plug it in at night and Mm -hmm. then i'm going to charge it back up for the next day
0: excellent Okay, so we got a salty solution that is discharging. I'm almost imagining it like one extremely slow motion rock of the chair. And then when it rocks all the way forward, you got to charge it again and then it rocks backward. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Okay, excellent. So that's it. Salty solution inside the battery. Now, that's lithium ion batteries. The fact that we're even talking about salts means that I have to ask you a bit about other salts. Sure. So I actually did take a quick look at my handy periodic table before this, and there are other elements that are in the same column of the periodic table as lithium. We have sodium, potassium, rubidium, cesium, and francium. Now, are they salts, and can we make batteries out of them?
1: Yeah, so these alkali metals, you make salts out of these. What's interesting about these alkali metals is that they want to lose their their electrons. So they want to become noble. And so they they have a very high propensity for losing their electrons, which is why they're interesting for us for making a battery. They have a lot of stored energy um, in these materials. Very cool that you're mentioning other salts, because of course, you know, you would expect that in the same column that we'd be investigating these other alkali metal salts to make other kinds of batteries. And we are. So sodium batteries are of great interest. There's a lot of people working on trying to get sodium ion batteries to work. Will sodium ion batteries be the next lithium ion batteries? Maybe, maybe not. There's a lot of challenges that we need to, you know, a lot of hurdles we have to cross uh, before we get there.
0: Yeah. Well, so I am aware that lithium is one of the most abundant elements in in the universe, Mm -hmm. given that it is quite light, right? We only have, it is the third element on the table. So apart from what I think we got like 90 something percent hydrogen, and then a bunch of helium, and then the rest is just like Lithium and then a tiny amount of everything else. Yeah. So technically, if we're talking about building batteries on like massive scales, you know, to maybe even fuel interstellar travel, which I'm going to get to this question about that in a second. Presumably, we would want to be using one of the most abundant elements. Like where's where's francium, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, cesium and francium are, are definitely less abundant. And I think a, a key concept here is also local abundance. You know, there is such a thing as saying... You know, hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe or helium, for example. But, you know, what are the deposits like on Earth and how easily can we access these materials here on Earth? And so Mm. in, in lithium ion batteries, as you've touched on, lithium is one of the lightest elements. And this is one of the main reasons lithium ion batteries have been so successful is it allows for very high energy densities. So energy is divided by mass. You want the most energy for the lightest battery especially when you're trying to put it in a car now at the same time how abundant is lithium on earth and where are we getting this lithium from and and this is a huge concern for people are we going to run out of lithium if we start scaling up production of lithium ion batteries and it's not just Mm -hmm. lithium it's some of these other materials that we're using in these batteries such as cobalt we're really probably harder pressed for cobalt than we are for lithium but a lot of people don't know that interesting So cobalt and lithium then are not renewable resources? Uh, It it depends how you look at it. To give you an example on this, so the recycling of lead acid battery is done to the 99th percentile. That means that of the lead that is in a lead acid battery, you are recovering almost 100% of it over the course of the recycling process. But it's not just the lead. You'd be getting the sulfuric acid back. You're getting the plastic back. You're getting most of the stuff back out once you recycle them. So the question is can we do that with lithium ion batteries and current lithium ion battery recycling technology is advanced enough that we are able to collect back a good amount of that lithium, a good amount of that cobalt, a good amount of those other materials. Now the issue is that as we're scaling up production of lithium ion batteries. The lifetime of these batteries is hopefully pretty long, right? You, you would expect that if you buy a Tesla Model X or your Model S, mm-hmm. that you, want, you don't want your battery to kind of die out after five years of use. You want to be able to for use sure. it for the next 10, 15 years, which means that that lithium and that cobalt is now locked away for that period of time. This is also assuming that that battery's life is done. That we will bring it to the recycling facility, which is a huge problem with this. How do you transport these lithium-ion batteries in tons, at the ton scale, to get yeah. to the recycling
0: facility? I'm glad that you that you brought up recycling. This was a question that was definitely going to come up later, given that we, we have huge applications here for, like you say, the, the current climate crisis, which is a great alliteration. Thank you for that. So... What you're saying, which is what I'm, I'm hearing, is there's a problem in terms of getting mass amounts of batteries to these plants. However, once we get them there, we're doing pretty well right now. What's like the percentage? You said it was 99% for the lead acid batteries. Are, are we over 90 right now in terms of the efficiency of recycling for lithium ion?
1: So it, I'm not an expert on the recycling, but it does depend on which elements and which technique we're going to use. So pyrometallurgy is kind of the technique. As I understand, that is the standard in industry, which which involves kind of baking all the components of the batteries at, like, between 1,000 and 1,400 degrees Celsius. And Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that is that you lose the lithium. The lithium evaporates. But you will collect back the cobalt, the nickel, for example, the iron, and these other metals. And like I said, the cobalt specifically is one of the big problems there. Now, uh, a lot of people are working on hydrometallurgy, where you would kind of dissolve the components of the battery in uh, sulfuric acid. And then you can collect the lithium, the cobalt, the nickel. And hydrometallurgy, from what I've seen, is pretty efficient. I mean, we're talking like 80 90% plus efficiency. Like I said, I'm not an expert, so I don't want to quote a specific value. But pretty good. And now a lot of people are working on scaling this process up.
0: Yeah. So do we have plants that are dedicated to this? Not like the things we're out of the ground. I'm talking like, you know industrial places where this is happening. Absolutely. Dedicated regions. Yeah. yeah.
1: And Canada is one of the leaders. And we even have uh, here in Montreal, there's a company called Lition who are working on uh, lithium ion battery recycling. And there's a, there's a lot of innovation in, in
0: Quebec that I know of for lithium ion battery recycling. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. I'm really glad that we touched on that. Cool. I, I won't ask any more questions about that, given that it's not your expertise. I-, I do have some others for sure. As I-, I think I kind of hinted at this earlier, so I want to come back to it we currently have cars like you said we have the tesla for example and other electric cars but we'll just name drop tesla for now and these cars have what you're saying lithium-ion batteries in them so same kind of same kind of chemistry is going on inside the batteries in my tesla versus my remote control for my tv correct correct excellent so if we can use the same kind of technology to operate a tv remote and a car can we create a rocket ship that works on lithium-ion batteries i i know you said lithium's light but even in a Tesla, you said we're talking about maybe on the order of even a ton of lithium. Is there a trade-off here? Can we create, just just straight up, can we create a battery-powered rocket ship, submarine, massive structure like this?
1: Yeah, it, it, I mean, for a rocket specifically, the amount of power that you need, i.e. energy per unit time per unit mass is so large that I sincerely doubt we would ever get to a point where lithium-ion batteries could power a rocket liftoff. Now, once a rocket is in space to be able to shift its orbit a little bit, possibly you could use energy from lithium-ion batteries to do that, especially if you're just charging them right back up using the solar panels. For other large vehicles even, I mean, just a being able to power a semi-truck on Earth is challenging using lithium-ion batteries, and I think people are more or less skeptical of how soon we're going to be able to make that that transition. I mean, we're still struggling with the light-duty vehicle electrification. And so, you know, what's going to happen in 20, 30 years, I'm not sure. But I, I would be highly skeptical of us ever being able to put a rocket in space using lithium-ion batteries. That's fair. That's fair.
0: So for now, we're stuck using fuel.
1: Unfortunately for now, we're stuck using fuel, which I think according to Elon Musk is, is not that much of a bad thing. I, I do recall seeing a video of him talking about how it, it wasn't as wasteful
0: as, as you would think. Okay. All right. So battery-powered rocket ships, maybe not necessarily common in the near future, but that's fine, right? That's fine. It isn't like we need batteries to solve all of our problems as long as they can solve many. Exactly. I mean, batteries solve some of our problems, but it sounds like your research is focused on solving some of batteries' problems. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So, So how are you helping batteries help us in a nutshell? Well, so,
1: and I think that the way that I like explaining the work that we're doing is that, you know this rocking chair model or the ping pong model, as I call it, uh, you know, we're kind of explaining that you want to get these lithium ions from one electrode to the other as fast as possible. You know, sometimes when you're discharging, for example, when you're pressing down on the accelerator on your car, you're demanding a lot of current from that battery. You're demanding a lot of electrons per second from your battery. Now, when the electrons are traveling through the circuit, you need a lithium ion to be following it as well. And at really large currents, we're being limited by how fast these lithium ions can get from one electrode to the other.
0: I think I'm going to actually have to stop you. Sorry, I just kind of dial this back a little bit because I'm not assuming any of our listeners actually have any idea what circuits are and currents. So let's actually maybe do a quick primer on that. Sure. So you're talking about currents carrying electrons and lithium ions. Yeah. These currents are passing between one and one.
1: Yeah, So, and this is the, the basis of, of how the battery will work is you're going to have an electrochemical reaction happening at these electrodes. What is happening if we look just at the positive electrode, for example, when you're charging it? Well, what's going to happen is you're going to oxidize the active material at the positive electrode. That is to say you are going to remove an electron from that material. That electron will travel through an external circuit And we will use that selected path to be able to collect energy from that electron. So we will deviate that electron through a light bulb, for example. And as that electron passes through our light bulb, we will collect the energy from that to produce light and heat.
0: How do you collect energy from a moving electron?
1: So the the moving electron needs to change energy levels to get to the other electrode. So both electrodes will have a difference in potential, in voltage. And that difference in voltage is a certain amount of energy per electron that you would transfer over. So as that electron is moving from the higher energy electrode, it needs to go to a lower energy electrode. Therefore, it needs to spend that energy in some way, shape or form. So the simplest way that you could do this is you could take one of these AA batteries, take a metal wire and short both the ends. What shorting means is I'm just going to take an electric wire, and I'm going to touch both ends together, and you will get an immediate discharge. All these electrons are going to travel to the lower energy electrode very rapidly, and you will see that wire will heat up and will turn red hot, depending on how much charge that battery has. You know, So I don't recommend you actually do this. Um, <laughs> okay, thanks for the warning. I was super excited to go do that like immediately. <laughs> but this is what we're doing. We're controlling the path that these electrons will take. It's just ideally, don't just put a wire there, put a wire and put a light bulb there so that we can actually harvest that energy in a meaningful way.
0: Okay, so this makes so much more sense to me now. I do have a bit of background in physics. And so this idea of of potential in terms of electricity reminds me of potential in terms of gravity. So if you take any object and raise it any distance above the surface of the earth and you let go, you don't need to impart any kind of force to it. Gravity is just going to act and pull it towards the earth. And so if you wanted to, let's say, I don't know, make a dent in the surface of the earth, you could just lift a heavy object high above it and then drop it. Kind of like what the Chicxulub asteroid did to the dinosaurs. Bye-bye dinosaurs, big dent in the earth, all the species die. Poor
1: dinosaurs. But that's exactly it. And the analogy that a lot of people use for circuits and currents and potentials and, you know, voltages, is they'll use water, you know? So it's like if you had water in a high place and you're, you're... Pouring that water out, you could see the flow of water as
0: a flow of electrons from one place to another. So for those history buffs out there, the Italian physicist Alessandro Volta is generally credited with having developed the first operable battery. Following up on the earlier work of Luigi Galvani, Volta performed a series of experiments on electrochemical phenomena during the 1790s. By about 1800, he built his simple battery, which later came to be known as the Voltaic Pile. This device consisted of alternating zinc and silver discs, separated by layers of wet cloth. Hmm. So, back to what you were saying. So, now that we know actually what's happening, you are talking about, we're imagining we're in a a car right now. Okay. So, bring us back to the car. Okay. So, we're
1: in a car. You need to now demand energy from that car. Now what's happening in your battery is to be able to produce that energy, you want to move those electrons from the higher potential electrode to the lower potential electrode and harvest that energy in a meaningful manner. Now instead of plugging a light bulb between these two electrodes, what we're going to do is plug an electric motor. And that's how these electric vehicles function. So when I'm accelerating very quickly, when I'm pedal to the metal, you know, when you're driving with a lead foot, you are demanding more electrons per second from that battery. Now, as these electrons are moving in the external circuit, what's happening in the electrolyte is these lithium ions are traveling to that same electrode. And this is kind of the rocking chair model. This is the the, the ping-ponging. So these electrons are flowing now through our electric motor that's giving our energy to the motor. And these lithium ions are gonna travel through this salty solution and they're gonna to travel to that same electrode. Now if the lithium ions aren't able to get there fast enough, what's gonna happen is you're gonna end up not having enough lithium ions at that electrode, and the performance of your battery will drop consequently. And so ideally we want those lithium ions to be able to move in solution as fast as possible.
0: What are the lithium ions even doing? I thought we just said that the energy comes from the potential of the electrons. So what are these lithium ions doing dilly-dallying their way down to these different ends of the battery? So,
1: you know, if we take a simplified case of a lithium battery, you would have just pure lithium metal as the negative electrode, for example. And so the energy is actually stored in the potential for that lithium metal to lose its electron, And conversely, when you're charging the battery, the fact that it doesn't want to gain back its electrons. So there's inherent energy in that lithium that we're using as an active material in the case of a lithium battery. And so this this lithium ion, in the case of going into or out of one of these electrode materials, what it does, it needs to do as well, is to balance the charge, right? So, I mean, in the case of charging a battery, you are removing an electron from the positive electrode, But that means that you've also now net charged that electrode positively, right? So now in order to balance the charge throughout the battery, you will need to move a positive charge away to the negative electrode, which is receiving an electron, is now being charged negatively, and because we're charging it negatively, we need to put a positive charge there to balance it out. So that's the concept of charge neutrality that we need to respect when we're operating a battery, when we're operating any electrochemical
0: system. I feel like I still don't really understand what the role is of the lithium that is moving. Why does lithium have to move?
1: Yeah, so this is a good question, and it's to neutralize the charge that is being formed. As you're removing an electron from the material, you now have a positive charge on that material.
0: Oh, the lithium's positive.
1: The lithium is charged positive. So it's a lithium plus. So as you remove the electron, the positively charged lithium has to come with the electron,
0: which is negatively charged. So they're partners in all this. This is uh, perfect. So it's basically every time an electron leaves, you want a neutral amount of charge to leave. So you've got to balance that electron with one of the positive lithium. Precisely. Got it. I I was, for some reason, I had in my head that the lithium ion was negative, but the ions are positive. The lithium ion is positive. Hey, look at that. We did it. (laughs) We figured it out. So what are some limitations then on, let's say, charging speed? I guess you just said the way that we can change discharge speed is like by having a, a lead foot, right? Pedal to the metal let's say, I don't know, running a lot of different programs on my computer at the same time will drain the battery, but how do I maximize the charging of the battery?
1: And that's what a lot of people want to do because if you're going to take your Tesla and you want to go on a long road trip and you're going to go for a pit stop to charge, you don't want it to take 10 hours to charge your battery. You want to be able to fast charge that battery in as short a time as possible. And, you know, often people are requiring the charge to be done in less than an hour, for example. And the, the way that you would do that is you would demand a greater current from the battery. You would say, give me more electrons per second, moving to the other electrode, fill it with electrons faster than you would if you were charging it only at you know a slow a slow rate. Now the problem with that, and that actually comes to the work that we're doing, is that the lithium ions can't keep up. They aren't able to travel fast enough for the huge amount of electrons that you're demanding. Like I said, if the lithium ions can't make it, it's not going to work. You need both the electron and the lithium ion. So when you're fast charging these batteries, you end up going sometimes faster than the lithium ions can keep up with.
0: That's okay. This is, this is a great example, I think, of, of why using cesium is a terrible idea. Because presumably, if cesium is a heavier element, it's going to move some more slowly. And so we're going to have this issue of fast charging even sooner.
1: Yeah, and there's, there's other issues to using these larger ions as well. You know, for example, sodium ion, as it places itself into the active material at either the negative electrode or the positive electrode, it's a much bigger ion. And so you're getting problems with being able to store that
0: ion in the material. Okay. So you also mentioned in the introduction that in your lab, you're looking to actually detect lithium ions Were we not able to actually detect them before? And when you say detection, do you mean actually localizing them in space?
1: Yeah, and this is where the kind of the irony is for me. I mean, uh, so lithium ion batteries have been developed for over 30 years now. And it's it's so crucial to know how fast these lithium ions can move in the solution, right? Because now we're saying that the charge and the discharge speed is going to be limited by how Mm -hmm. fast these lithium ions can move. And there is a lot of work that's been done on this, but it's very difficult to visualize lithium ions because they are such a light element. So a lot of spectroscopic techniques don't work on such a light element. And so one of the things that hasn't been done is being able to, as you said, localize in space, inside a battery, the concentration of the lithium ions as a function of the position. So for example, if I cut up my battery into a bunch of slices, what is the concentration of lithium ions at every single slice as I'm charging or discharging that battery? And what I would expect to see is that as I'm charging the battery, for example, all the lithium ions are moving towards one end, as I said, and so that means I should get a deficiency of lithium ions on one end, and I should get a much larger concentration of lithium ions at the other end. And so our work is focused on being able to see that difference in concentration at both electrodes while we're charging and discharging a battery.
0: As you are explaining that, I got this intense visual of a lava lamp where you have this concentration of goop at the bottom. And as it heats up or charges, it kind of decreases its density and flows to the top and then it kind of falls back down.
1: That's a great analogy for it. Uh, you know, so uh, as you're you're using your lava lamp, you start with all the goop at the bottom and it's got to make its way to the top. And, you know, operating batteries now is like we're operating and, and you can't actually see where the goop is.
0: <laughs> it's an opaque lava lamp. It's just a useless lava exactly. lamp.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what uh, batteries are now. And that's what we're trying to shed light on is trying to remove that veil, put glass there so we can see where the goop is as you're charging and discharging the battery. And, uh, you know, the, the basic idea behind it is how are you going to make a better battery that can move lithium ions in a more efficient manner if you don't know where the lithium ions are? How are you going to make a better lava lamp that can transfer the goop faster if you can't see the goop, right? So that that's what our work is focused on, is seeing the goop.
0: <sighs> cool. Seeing the goop. I feel like that's a good like research paper title. I'll,
1: I'll consider it for the next paper that we publish. Uh, I, we'll, we'll we'll give you credits if we choose that name.
0: Please. <laughs> uh, I beg of you. <laughs> I haven't I I haven't published anything myself. So to get my name on uh, Seeing the Goop would be would be quite a dream come true. You'll be in the acknowledgments. <laughs> sure. Yeah, again, thank you for this not having happened yet, but maybe. I just want to challenge you on that for a second. Okay, so essentially you're saying that we need to know the location of the lithium ions. But can't I just know how many lithium ions are at one end versus the other? And then can I just look at the rate of change of the lithium ions at each of the ends? What, what new information am I getting if, if I look in the middle? Like, does the acceleration matter? So it's not
1: that the acceleration matters, but it's that these electrodes are actually like sponges. It's not like a a solid material that we would imagine. Mm. It's kind of like a sponge that holds on to this electrolyte. It holds on to this solution of lithium ions. Got it. And so what we need to do is we need to see in the sponge, for example, on one end of the sponge, what is the concentration versus the concentration on the other end? Now, the reason that's important is we need to know are my lithium ions traveling efficiently through my sponge? And if they're not, maybe I need to redesign the sponge. And so right now, we have mathematical models, we have numerical models that we can use to kind of see that. However, if we could see it in an experiment, if we could see that concentration experimentally, we could hopefully design new sponges, i.e. new electrodes, that could be better for fast charging or fast discharging applications.
0: Okay, so in your lab, are you looking at all components of the battery, not just the lithium, but also, like you're saying, these sponges? And you're kind of deconstructing the whole thing to see which components can be improved?
1: Uh, th- this is actually the work that we're going to be doing next week. So you have to oh. get time at a what's called a synchrotron, which is a huge multi-million dollar facility uh, where they have very concentrated fluxes of x-rays that you can use to, to do this visualization, to use this technique. And so we have measurements next week where we're going to take a fully assembled lithium ion battery, and we're going to look at both sponges, where the sponges are the electrodes. So we're going to look at the positive electrode, the negative electrode, and we're going to look as a function of time while we charge or discharge that battery. So we're going to basically discharge the battery and continuously monitor what the concentration of lithium ions is
0: everywhere while we do that. That's so sick. Cool, eh? So, so I'm excited. What kind of battery are you using? Is it going to be a AA or is it going to be like a Tesla battery or, some, or something in between? Usually what we do is
1: we make coin cells. So coin cells are kind of the batteries you would have in your watch, for example. But yep. to be able to visualize it while we're charging and discharging, we actually had to develop a custom cell design that would have a, a window. Uh, so basically a, a part of the battery in which we, we could see through it. Um, but not see through it with our eyes, not see through it with normal wavelengths of light, but see through it with x-rays. So we, we mm-hmm. built a homemade cell that has a very thin wall that the x-rays can travel through. And so that's what we're going to be using to see uh, what happens inside a battery.
0: Interesting. So x-rays can't actually travel through the wall of the battery in my computer?
1: They can. It depends on the energy of these x-rays. So the, the x-rays yeah. that we're going to have to use in our case are relatively low energy and will not be able to penetrate through more than than a few millimeters
0: of material. Mhm. I'm curious this uh, synchrotron? Synchrotron, yeah. This synchrotron. Do you know what kind of labs are using it before and after you? Like do you know what what other research is is involved in using these kinds of Measurement uh, devices. He says multi-million-dollar machine. I'm, 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 too curious.
1: Oh, they, they're becoming more and more used. There's more and more in the world. Um, I mean, it, it still is kind of an exclusive facility to be able to use. In Canada, we have one for the oh, in, entirety God. of all Canadian universities. <laughs> we have access to one, and they do all sorts <laughs> That's of crazy. yeah. They do they do all sorts of research from biology to to chemistry to physics. They 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 do everything, and they're, it's not just X-rays. You can also get infrared light from this and, and and like i said in very high flexes so for example the canadian light source the canadian synchrotron its motto is canada's brightest light which it in fact is
0: in terms of like metaphorically
1: in, in terms of the number of photons you would get per unit area per second
0: oh my goodness you wouldn't want to, like, walk by the synchrotron when it's uh, Absolutely facing in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. I would not want to be that battery. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> window or no window.
1: Yeah, actually, the first battery we brought over, the flux of photons was so large and there was there was so much energy that we actually melted it and it started leaking out the electrolyte. So oh, we had to redesign boy. it after that.
0: That's... That- that's so sad because, like you said, there's only one of these machines and you only got one shot at it, right?
1: Exactly. You only have a few days per year to be able to try your experiments and you end up melting the cell. So,
0: yeah, yeah. it's. A, hopefully it will go better next week. I hope so. I think it's also a good lesson for the listeners uh, if, if you're getting into, into research yourself and you find one of your experiments has failed – well, you might be able to redo it tomorrow, not wait 350 days to try it again, you know? So this is this is really, really sensitive kind of stuff you're dealing with here, Jeremy.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, and, and we have gotten a proof of concept measurement already that was successful. So we did manage to, to cross over the hurdles. But yeah, it's difficult yeah. when
0: you can only do, uh, you know, an experiment a year. For sure. Just because I got to ask, we're talking five to 10 years out now. What kind of major developments do you see in the daily usage of batteries?
1: You know, everyone right now is trying to work firstly on, you know, fast charge technology. Increasing the energy density is super important to be able to electrify the transport system. So, you know, the transport system is something like 25% of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's the first kind of thing that lithium ion batteries is trying to tackle. And, And I think people are aware of that. We're trying to electrify light duty vehicles, your SUVs, your car. Now, there's a concept that I personally think is going to be maybe more used in the future, which is called vehicle-to-grid charging. And the idea is that, you know, solar energy and wind is intermittent. you know, the sun only shines for a few hours a day, and those may not be the hours of the day where we use our power. And I think a lot of people don't really take this into consideration, but, you know, the computer that we're using right now is using electricity that was generated a few microseconds ago from a power generation station somewhere near you. There is no grid based energy storage, or if there is, it's it's almost negligible. And so in the future, as we get more solar and more wind, we're going to need a mechanism to store this energy. And I think lithium ion batteries is going to play a big role in storing that energy. And vehicle to grid is one way that we could do this by using the electric cars that we're driving around, these basically mobile batteries and using those to store the energy of the sun during the day, store the energy from the wind during the night and to release that energy
0: when we need it the most in the,
1: in, you know, five, six o'clock.
0: So while my car is just sitting on the street, it's going to be collecting energy. How? Like obviously if it has, if it has solar panels on its roof, then it can collect energy from the sun, but that's a very small surface area.
1: Mm-hmm. So the the idea is that your cars only use something like 5% of the time on average. Yeah. Most of the time it's parked in your driveway or parked at work. So while you're parked at work, you know, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. where the sun is shining the brightest, well, the grid-based solar energy is going to be charging up your car. And then you're going to drive it back home and you're going to plug your car back into, into your house, back into the grid in the evening and... And then your car is going to discharge its battery, so you can use your oven, so you can use your laundry machines. So. Oh, what? Yeah, so you're
0: gonna charge your house with your car.
1: Yeah, so this this I think is a very promising concept. If people are interested, it's called vehicle to grid, and I see that this is probably gonna be the way that we're going to store solar and wind energy in the future.
0: Oh, that's crazy. Oh, oh my God. I I guess I guess the massive fleet of like hundreds of millions of cars on the road in North America. It's like an untapped market for for energy storage.
1: That's exactly and it. And discharge. We're, oh, we're driving goodness. mobile batteries, so why not use those batteries in all the time that we're, we're not driving our cars?
0: So good. So good. Oh, my God. Amazing. This brings us to my final question. Sure. I wish this would never end, but it has to. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay. So final question kind of a situation to imagine yourself in thought experiment you're standing at the foot of an auditorium jam-packed huge auditorium thousand seater everyone's staring right at you what do you tell them what i would tell them is
1: we need to work together Um, i would tell them that the greatest challenge that humanity currently faces is the climate crisis is the energy crisis and that if we don't work together we are screwed and uh, it's gonna be a joint effort. It's not just gonna be batteries. It's not just gonna be solar. It's not just gonna be wind. It's gonna be reducing your consumption of plastic. It's gonna be lowering your consumption of meat. It's gonna be reducing your commute, use your bicycle. It's gonna be for policymakers. We all need to work together on this or we are already seeing the effects of climate change and these will only get worse with time and current projections are grim. Like I said, I think this is the greatest challenge that we're currently facing.
0: Thank you. I think it's important that we all hear that once in a while. Absolutely. So uh, thank you for staying here. Thank you for being here. Jeremy, this is awesome. This is just so good. I'm glad this finally came together. Really nice to have you on the show, Jeremy. Thank you so much for sharing your name with me and for sharing your knowledge with myself and the listeners. Just amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or, if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly, on Sundays, and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts, so... Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.